0: Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Before we begin, I just want to say that this is a very intimidating ser- uh, sermon and passage and topic given our current context in the U.S. There's a lot of violence, rioting, suspicion, mistrust, and they're, and they're driving us to a strange place. And I'm not going to talk specifics about it because I'm not qualified, and I'm not going to give a rehash of all the news. Because it, I don't think it'll do anything productive. There is a there's an old Jimmy Stewart movie, and I think I've referenced it before. It's called Shenandoah. And in the movie, he is uh, he's a Virginia farmer. He does not have slaves, that's during the Civil War. And the war is encroaching upon him uh the, the North and the South, the Union, the Confederacy, they're they're encroaching upon him. And he is very determined to let everybody know that this is not his war, and he will not take part in it. And he's very stubborn about that, Uh, and he uh, argues with everybody that he comes across, this is not his war, this is not his fight, and he will take... He says, I take no note of it. My corn and my potatoes I take note of because they are mine, but this war is not mine, and I take no note of it. Uh, And he starts out the movie, a very proud man, a very arrogant man, uh, thinking that he could... Stay out of it. And then uh, the cannons start, start, uh, the cannonballs start landing on his property, and there's a battle right in his property. Uh, and uh, he, he actually, there's, there's a Confederate officer that comes to his house, and he complains to him, and he says, my uh, cows have stopped giving milk and my chickens have stopped laying. Who do I send the bill to? And the Confederate guy just looks at him and says, well, you can send it to Abe Lincoln. They're mostly his. And what he finds out in the whole rest of the movie is that um, when there's this national uh, war, national conflict going on, as arrogant as he is, as proud as he is, as much as he wants to, it's very hard for him to stay out of it. In fact, it becomes impossible for, it to, um, for him to stay out of it. And finally, his son gets taken prisoner. He was not a soldier, but he got taken prisoner. Um, and, and when the news reached him, he just kind of looks to the side and he says, now it concerns us. And so um, I, I feel like with what's going on in the nation at this point, um, we can we can say for a, as, as long as we can. I don't know how long will anybody will be able to stay out of it, but I think that there will be an increased pressure um, to do something about it, to say something about it, to take a side or to do whatever. In, in the past, there have been conflicts where you could say, Oh, I don't like either one of them. They're all just, you know, foolish and, and blah, 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 and I, I don't, I don't, I'm I not on either side. Or there have been other times when you can say, well, I can kind of see what both sides are talking about. Um, but I think that there, will, there, there has been, I have felt, an increased pressure to take a side, uh, to take note of it, to do something about it, to say something about it, and yet I feel completely ill-prepared. I have nothing to say that hasn't already been said. I have no idea what I could possibly do, and so it's very hard, it's very hard, and if you feel the difficulty and the stress on yourself, I completely empathize with you, uh, what can a powerless person do uh, in the midst of all this conflict, of all this conflict? Peace is hard, and during peaceful times, I might preach this passage about how you can make better peace within your family or with family and friends, Uh, but Today, I'm, I'm, I am I'm feel like I'm tasked or I'm compelled to talk about uh, an, an even bigger and a more impossible situation. I'm going to read our passage, and then I'm going to tell you three stories, and I'm going to overlay these three stories together. Uh, everybody likes a good story, so surely you'll like three uh, all at the same time, too. And one of the stories has to do with um, a little bit about what is happening in the United States right now. Uh, and uh, the second story is has to do with something that happened in the South Pacific in the 1960s. And the third is the story of Jesus and His gospel. Let's read Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, He went up on the mountainside, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him, and He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then just let me go back and repeat verse 9, because that's what we'll be looking at today. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So the state of affairs these days is really hard to soak in a... uh, Policeman killed an innocent man. And it's not the first time, but there was something different about this one, I felt like. In times past, uh, the police would often rally together and, and say, and, and defend one of their own. Defend one of their own. You know, it's hard to do what we do. Uh, they didn't mean to do this. We're trying to, you know, we'll, uh, we want to we rally around one of our own. Uh, and anybody in any industry will do that. Teachers will always defend teachers. Pastors will always defend pastors. Doctors will defend doctors. Anybody who does a hard job where sometimes lives are on the line or, or, or uh, critical issues are on the line, they'll defend their own when one of their own does something uh, terribly wrong. Uh, and so I knew this one was a little bit different when I immediately heard a lot of outcry also from police officers. So, you know, we've seen, we've seen this happen in the past where uh, police are, um, arresting a suspect, and and they kill them, accidentally or, or intentionally. Uh, they always claim accidental. Maybe sometimes it's more intentional. Um, but this time when it happened, uh, police officers that I knew, police officers that I heard on the the, the news and radio, they were all saying, no, 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 that is not one of our tactics. That is not what we do. That is not how it's supposed to go down. They, absolutely, there's no reason for this. Uh, and so there was a great outcry even among them. So, so at that point, you're just like, okay, all right, now, now, now we know um, if, if so many people are so unanimous on this issue, then we really do know um, a lot more than what we have uh, in the past. But I wanted to talk a, a little bit more this, this morning about uh, society, about society. And I, I, I always, I never want to blame society because society is made up of what? Individuals, all right? Uh, there is a mob mentality and there is a society mentality, but that's all um, made up of individuals. I heard a, a, a pastor one time talking, I really... In my mind, I kind of bristled back from what he said. He said, I'm interested, I'm not interested in redeeming individuals, I'm interested in redeeming society. Well, I'm sorry, you can't do that. You can't redeem society without redeeming individuals. You cannot confront society without confronting uh individuals. Uh, but there uh there are uh there is a um, what do I want to call it? There's a I feel like a growing callousness in society towards violence and, and human suffering towards violence and human suffering or at least as somebody said it's not being done more it's being videoed more we're seeing it uh, more and maybe for that reason maybe people are growing more and more callous to human suffering on um, uh, in, in the world it's very hard it's very hard to uh, be a person who sees human suffering and sees evil and sees violence all the time without getting desensitized to it. That's why the. That's why there's this big debate about, say, video games and things like that that are very violent. And and they and people wonder, does that does that contribute to violence? I don't know. If you if you're so desensitized to it in movie and movies and games and TV and other media, does that lead to you being desensitized to it in real life? And and it can be. It can be. Uh, and so. Um, what I wanted to say, uh, and I don't think it came across very well in the first service, but I'm going to say it again anyway, is that it's hard to be a police officer or it's hard to be an authority figure in a world where society sees a lot of, of human suffering and violence and inflicts a lot of human suffering and violence, and then you also don't become jaded and calloused uh, by yourself. We talk about soldiers. Soldiers are sent to a battlefield to do a very difficult job, and not very long after they get there, they become battle hardened. Uh, they become very callous. What shocked them their first day on the battlefield, after the second day, or third day, or fourth day, it's just commonplace. It doesn't matter to them anymore. They see it and they can pass by it and they can take part in it, and it just doesn't uh, just doesn't bother them anymore. And the same thing can happen to um, to our police, to our police, where they get battle-hardened, and they get calloused to to human suffering. And this police officer that did this, I don't know how he started out. I don't know if he started out so battle-hardened. I don't know if he started out so calloused. Um, If he didn't, if I give him the benefit of the doubt and say, uh, no, he didn't start out that way, he became that way over years and years on the police force, and being a police officer is a very hard job. You never, as a police officer, you never encounter somebody who is glad to see you. Okay? If if you show up on a situation, 99% of the time, it's somebody, you're there to arrest somebody or to ticket somebody or to or to, to talk sense into somebody, and they don't want to talk to you. So nearly every, every interaction that a police officer has is confrontational. And as a result, you can get battle-hardened. You can get battle-hardened to the point that you just don't care about what suffering your violence, you visit back on people. And so this officer should have been fired a long time ago, confronted a long time ago, or transferred to Mayberry a long time ago so that he could live in a, in a small town where there's less violence, where there are fewer bad confrontations, so he could get rid of some of that tension, get rid of some of his battle-hardenedness, or something like that. And obviously I don't know him, so I can't speak... Uh, into what was really going through his mind and what was going on around him. I just know that as society sees more violence, sees more conflict, we get more and more callous to it. And so that means it's going to escalate or it's going to get worse because what should have been confronted a long time ago will sometimes start to say, oh, that happens every day here. That's no big deal. All right. Now, let me switch venues for a moment. There was a missionary in the 1960s, and I don't know if he's still alive or not. I met him about 10 years ago, though, and his name is Don Richardson, Dr. Don Richardson, and he wrote this book. It's called Peace Child. Um, And in the 1960s, he, a doctor, and his wife went to um, the jungles of Papua New Guinea to set up a clinic as missionary doctors. Uh, And he... He sort of set up his um, his clinic here, and there were three villages near him. And very shortly after arriving there, he realized uh, these people come from a very violent culture. There is a lot of violence about uh, here. In fact, in the first two months that he was there, he saw about fourteen battles. And he said, after that we kept uh, we stopped keeping count. There were spears and there were arrows flying all the time. And when it happened, we just got down on the ground and waited until it was over. But these different villages feuded against each other. Not only that, within the villages, people feuded with each other to the point that that violence and killing was a daily occurrence. Inside the home, domestic violence was an incredible problem. There was blood on people's hands, on people's bodies, scars, wounds, all the time. Not only that, the the culture of death, or the the callousness of to death, or the the reality of death as just a daily part of of, of life, was even exacerbated by um, just how bad medical care was there. There was a very low life expectancy there. People died of curable diseases all the time. The infant mortality rate was extremely high. the the infant mortality rate was so high that the whole life expectancy was um, winnowed down to an average of about 25. That is the average life expectancy. Now, if somebody made it past three or four years old, th- their life expectancy much might be much higher. But just think about living in a place where there's violence all the time, people die all the time, people die of curable diseases all the time, and um, you have no idea if you're going to have a baby. Uh, you don't know if you're going to survive it or the baby's going to survive it. Okay? That kind of... of of environment is where he was, and in one uh, one instance, um, there was a battle going on, spears flying everywhere, arrows flying everywhere, and he's laying down on the ground. And then there were two thoughts going through his mind. Uh, and I, I want these to I want these to, to resonate with us also. I see this conflict. Somebody had told him at once, "Do not get in the middle of it. If you get in the middle of it," You die, no more medical care, no chance of them hearing the gospel, no no chance of, of stopping any of this. so you have to stay out of it. you have to just lay low while all this is happening, or else these people have no hope. okay While he was laying there, another thought came through his mind if I don't get in the middle of this, these people have no hope. If I don't do something, these people have no hope and I hope that uh, I hope that Christians will always feel that sort of tension in their mind. Uh, as well, um, because in our national dialogue or in our global dialogue or even in the the, um, the squabbles that people have in their families, sometimes it's hard to choose a side. I don't think if, if you ask Don Richardson, well, whose side are you on, this village or, or this village? There's no way he could take a side. He doesn't know enough. He doesn't have enough information. Or the conflict has been alive so long, how could you possibly uh, know who started it anyway or you know anything like that? Um, and so it's easy for us to say it doesn't involve me. I have nothing to do with it. I'm going to stay over here as an as a independent observer, and if they ever want my advice, I'll, I'll give it to them. And that's, a, that's great. I'm glad that you're available as a resource there, but it probably won't end up really making peace. Instead, unfortunately, at great risk, Don Richardson said, no, I have to get in to the middle of this. Right or wrong on either side, what can... What what will what will the outcome be if I don't get in the middle of this? And so he stood up and he and he, he he knew very little of their language at that point, but he knew how to say it is enough. So he stood up and he yelled out, "It is enough!" And somebody came up and said, "What are you doing here? What are you doing? Don't don't stand up in the middle of a battle, a suicide, it's stupid! Why in the world would you do that?" He said, "I got to do something. It is enough." And that day that that battle stopped, and they all kind of went went home. The problem was. He inadvertently started... Uh, not he didn't start it, but he made it worse because he had actually put his mission station, station sort of equidistant from these three villages, and then he encouraged them to all uh, move a little bit closer to him, get closer to him. It's a great idea. I'm going to bridge the gap. We're going to start some really good dialogue, except if you've ever known two people who were at odds with each other to the point that they wanted to kill each other, the last thing you should do is put them in closer proximity to each other. And actually... He caused a a greater conflict. He caused a greater conflict inadvertently. He didn't want that, but it is what happened. Now, when Jesus walked this earth, violence was common too. Violence was common. Uh, He and his people, the Jews, they are no strangers to violence as we all know. And at that time in the first century, they were under the oppression of the Romans. Roman soldiers could come in, take anything they want, and they did the Roman governors could crucify anybody that they suspect of trying to overthrow their, their rule. And they did. They lined the roads with them. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were both Jewish factions, Jewish parties themselves, religious and political parties themselves, they could stone people to death for religious law-breaking. And they did. Remember, uh, there's in, story, in, the, in John chapter 8, there was a, a woman, a, a stoning that Jesus Stopped. But let's not think that that was the first one he had ever seen or the first one that he'd ever been around. This might have been just the first and only one that he was ever to do anything about. Those things happened. And not only that, there was this, this underlying simmering in the whole nation of Israel that we want to rise up and overthrow the Romans and drive them out just like we did the Greeks a couple of hundred years ago. If you'll recall, on the day that Jesus was crucified... Uh, three crosses had already been built, pre-built, ready to go for three certain prisoners. And they were uh, all sort of led by a guy named Barabbas. And Barabbas and these two other guys who are nameless, they had taken part in some sort of an insurrection. Um, And Jesus took Barabbas' place on the cross. That's a theological and a metaphorical truth for all of us. Jesus took our place on the cross. It was literal for Barabbas. But... He was going to be crucified because he was taking part in an insurrection. He was looking to kill somebody, and he had killed somebody. Jesus hadn't threatened anybody, really, but he was crucified anyway, and Pilate was was very angry and upset about the fact that he had to let Barabbas go that day. So Jesus came into a world that was violent, that was always on edge, always ready to lash out, and we can see that in the arrest scene. When Jesus was arrested, Peter took out a sword, and he was ready to act. And he did act. And Jesus said, no, no, no more of this. No more of this. It comes to naught, at least in this case. And he healed the ear of the servant of the high priest, and he, and Jesus was taken. So Jesus never really he, he never shrank back. He never shrank back that he had come into this world to get involved in human affairs... And he never, uh, never shrank back from his calling to bring peace, even at a high cost. Everyone wants peace. At least they say they do. There's only one problem. There's only one problem with, with it. Especially for you and me. Maybe you, feel the same, maybe you feel differently than I do. Maybe you understand the, per, the, the situation clearly. But in our world, it's really hard sometimes to discern the good from the bad. Sometimes it's easy. All right. What happened in Minneapolis? Everybody's universally agreed bad. Other judgment calls on other things that are happening sometimes very hard to make. And we as Christians are supposed to stand and fight for what is good and righteous. but It's not always easy to know that. And why is that? It's because of the work of him who is false, the deceiver, the betrayer. In Don Richardson's story, um, it's, there was a shocking moment He's telling the story of Jesus, and when you tell the story of Jesus, when you get close to the time of the crucifixion, you have to start talking about Judas, and so he described Judas and what Judas did, and in that hut around the fire, the men that he was speaking to started to say, yeah, now there's the guy, and he said, he he, later kind of took somebody aside and said, did I understand that correctly? that you liked Judas? And they said, oh yeah, he's the guy. He's the guy who knows how to handle a pig. What? And they started explaining to him, no, 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 the guy who can handle a pig. Let, let me, let, let's back up here. Pigs, okay? Let's talk about pigs for a second. We breed pigs, right? We make more pigs. And then we feed the pigs. And we protect the pigs from the dogs. The pigs think that we love them. And then one day we have bacon for dinner. Okay. Yeah. So anytime in their culture, anytime you can lull somebody into a false sense of security and make them think that you're their friend and then stab them in the back, betray them, trick them, deceive them, that's good. That's great. That's a noble virtue. And it just really spoke to Don Richardson that that's how far this cycle of violence and conflict and revenge has gotten where they think that the betrayer and the deceiver is the good guy. It's unbelievable. You would never ever expect that in any culture among any people that they think that a betrayer is the good guy. Except that sometimes we do. Sometimes we like the bad guy. Sometimes we like the deceiver. Let me try to prove it to you. It's mostly innocent. You like Robin Hood, right? All right. He's a thief, but his moral compass is in the right direction, we suppose. Remember, he's fictional. How about the movie Ocean's Eleven? Did you like the movie Ocean's Eleven? Did you like all the trickery and all the deceiving and all the... Yeah. And it's easy. It's easy. Because who's the good guy in Ocean's Eleven? Or who's the bad guy? Is there a good guy? Is there a bad guy? Well, they're all bad guys. They're all thieves just stealing from thieves, right? But the fact is, every once in a while, you know in your life that you have been charmed by a deceiver. And you knew they were deceiving you when they did it. But goodness, his eyes are so blue and his hair is so black He's got these dimples, and he's just got this smile. And he tells me again and again, I'll never do it again. No, 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 you're the only girl. All this, they tell you this, and you know it's a lie. But you just can't say no. He's so charming. Even though I know it's a lie, I still like him. Or she just flicks her hair in a certain way, and she's got me. I know, I know what's going on. I know that I'm being deceived. I know that if I was honest with myself, I would know exactly what's going on. But I just love them so much. And in romance, it happens all the time because we enjoy deluding ourselves. But it happens on a national stage too. Um, Because you probably have some sort of loyalty to some sort of media outlet, news source, something like that, or a political party, or a politician in general. And you know that they are not telling you the truth 100% of the time. Maybe most of the time. Maybe they're better than the other side. Maybe they're, they're not fully honest. We know they're not fully honest, but they're more honest than the other side. But we let ourselves be drawn in and we... We believe things that we know are probably not good or that we let them justify their actions in this way, but we would never, and we say, okay, but we would never afford the same latitude to the other side. We let ourselves be deceived. And it makes it more and more difficult for the two sides to come together and bring peace because we're listening to a certain narrative. We like our narrative, they like their narrative, And we won't admit that there's lies embedded in it. And we won't admit that there's an individual out there who's probably charming us into taking their side when we should know or we do know, but we just don't care that there's a lie in there somewhere. And you hear all this debating, debating without end, arguing without no end, texting back and forth to people to no end, but nobody's really interested in finding the truth. The, uh, the, the, the conversation ought to lead to the truth, or a refining, refined uh, a greater, a more greatly refined understanding of what is really going on. That's what it ought to lead to. But really, people just want to win. They just want to win the argument. They just want to win the debate. They just want to come off as looking better than the other side. And so it's very hard for us to put things down, put, put away whatever politician, whatever political party, whatever platform, whatever news source, whatever narrative, and think clearly about what really needs to be done. We would never think that we would vote for a betrayer or that we would listen to a betrayer, that we would form opinions on things that matter by listening to a betrayer, but we do. Now, how's it all end? That's the big question to me. That's the big question to me. I don't, I, some of it I don't care about. How does it end? Uh, no matter um, what, what's going on, just how do we put an end to this and how do we get back to a place where people can live their lives better and, 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 and get back to being productive in their own life? Um, how's it going to end? And my fear is that it will end uh, with nothing changed, nothing better uh, we just put this away and wait until it happens again the next time. And then we, we go through the whole process again. And you've probably had relationships uh, in your life that were the exact same way. The issue never really got settled. Uh, we had a big blow up last time. Things kind of petered out, but we never really got to the heart of the matter. And we never really made a change in our behavior or their behavior. We never changed. Nobody ever changed my mind. So, so the next time that this kind of thing happens, it's just going to happen again. It's just going to happen again, okay. So how does it all end? How does it all end? Uh, I fear uh, that it, there are a couple of different ways. There are a couple of different ways, and they actually can—they actually kind of converge in the end as being almost the same way. There was a, um, there was this kind of violence, escalated violence happening in the 1990s in Chicago. There was a. Um, in the inner city there, there was a, a housing project called Cabrini Green. Does anybody remember? In the first service, some people remembered Cabrini Green. What it was, was it was a 70-acre housing project with a lot of high-rise buildings, and there were 13,000 people living in this uh, one apartment complex. Just so you know, that's Gardner, Farmingdale, Hollowell, and Randolph combined in, uh, in an area that's, um, uh, you know, say say, the common and, and the neighborhood around it. It's about that area. But it put all those all those towns in, into, into that, that space. And there were two gangs, two rival gangs that lived there. And so violence was a daily occurrence. And some people tried to deny that it was all that bad. There was a mayor of Chicago. And she sort of ran on the platform that it's really not that bad. And, 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 and things are a lot better than, than, you, than you think they are. And she actually moved into Cabrini-Green for a little while. Uh, and she, she soon found out that, no, it really is that bad. And for her security, they ended up welding her back door shut. Uh, now, your back door probably can't be welded shut because it's made out of wood, right? Uh, you probably don't live in a steel-reinforced house. Uh, but if you do live in a steel-reinforced house and the, the area where you live in is, is bad enough, you can weld the back door shut so, so that you only have to uh, defend one, one entrance, okay? Okay. But that's how bad it was. And she didn't stay, uh, stay there that much longer. She finally had to admit that it is that scary, and she moved out. And other people started welding their doors shut too. And um, people just couldn't go about their daily life without the threat of violence. Finally, uh, a little girl was assaulted in a stairwell, and the attack was so horrific that actually one of the gangs called the police and said, we want you to investigate this. Right? And so how bad does something have to be when the gangs call the police and ask for help? That's how bad it was getting there. And then uh, shortly after that, there was a, a seven-year-old boy that was killed on his way to school. Um, he was holding hands with his mother, just walking here, walking too close to the, the other intended target, and somebody, a sniper from a high window, shot down, missed, killed the little boy. And the national outrage, was, it, was, it was overwhelming. And people just started moving out. That's it. We cannot be part of this place anymore. And pretty soon after that, um, the whole whole housing project was demolished. And that's what I fear. That's what I fear, is that if we can't make peace, if we cannot make a gesture of peace, if we cannot come to the table and talk, and if we cannot find some way uh, to um, negotiate out what what can really make for a better place to live, then the violence just escalates until somebody innocent dies. People have already, more people have already been killed, uh, more than just George Floyd. Since then, how many more people have been killed? How many more people that would be alive today if that death hadn't occurred? But this, this uh, situation is escalating uh, to the point where so many p- more people are dying. And pretty soon, I fear that somebody that's truly innocent uh, will die. On the day that Jesus was crucified, towards the end of, of his time on the cross, well, when he breathed his last, there was this earthquake, the sky had turned black, everybody was terrified, his death was a sight to behold. And after it was done, all those who were standing around, who had been mocking who had been protesting, who had been saying whatever to Jesus. They looked at him, and they saw the way he died, and they said, oh, oh my, what have we just done? What have we just been party to? Even the Roman soldier, maybe the one that drove the nails, but certainly one standing there who looked at it and said, uh, and we have different accounts, he either said, surely this was the Son of God, or he said, surely this was an innocent man. Surely this was a righteous man. At a certain point, the people who had come out there to see a crucifixion, and what do you have to, what kind of person do you have to be to want to go watch a crucifixion? And then to jeer at the people being crucified, and then one of them dies in such a way that you say, Oh no, what have we done? What have we done? And so what I fear will happen in the United States is that at some point somebody truly innocent, somebody that everybody was trying to protect, somebody that everybody should have been trying to protect protect will die, and everybody will step back and say we 've gone too far we 've gone too far. What have we done here? How bad has it gotten? How callous have we gotten For Don Richardson in the story "Peace Child in Papua New Guinea, the violence between these villages, escalated to an incredible point where they started talking about peace. How can we make peace? But it's impossible to make peace because neither side trusts the other. Because remember, their their culture is based on this idea that there is a noble trait uh, in deception and trickery and betrayal. How could you ever sign a peace treaty with somebody who believes that betrayal of the peace treaty is a noble thing. That's the goal. You're the good guy if you can do that. How could you possibly make peace between two such factions where distrust has gotten to that point? Well, one morning, Richardson gets up, and there's a, um, an argument, a scuffle, a squabble going on in one of the villages. And I don't think his language skills were very good at that point. I don't know that he could understand exactly everything that was going on there. But they were, the men were yelling at each other, talking to each other. And the women were all holding their babies very tight. And then one of the men picks up his infant son and starts walking to the other village. And in his mind, I think he's, he's thinking, are we about to see some kind of a sacrifice here? What are we, what are we, about, to, what are we about to see? But it, this guy goes to the other village, and he yells for people to come out. And they come out. And he hands his child over to somebody. And they talk for a little bit. And then somebody brings a child and puts it in his hands. And then he leaves and he goes back to his village. And the people in the the second village, they all gather around the baby and they place a hand on it. And they say some words. And the same thing happens in this village over here. And then that night, there's this party where they get together and they, they do these sing these songs and have these dances where they sort of intermingle with each other. And he asked somebody, what's going on here? I need to know. And he said, he has offered the peace child. The peace child. Tell me about the peace child. What's the peace child? Well, the only way to really make a, a peace with anybody uh, is to give them your child. Because then they can know beyond a shadow of doubt that you won't attack them. Because if you attack them, the first person that they're going to kill is the, is the peace child. So he offered his peace child this morning, and then they offered peace child back. So we actually have now a trusting, lasting peace. It can be had because of the exchange of the peace child. And Don Richardson thought about it for a long time, and he said, Oh my goodness, I now have what we call and what missionaries call the redemptive analogy. We believe that in every culture, God has placed some aspect, some thing, some truth, some belief that points straight to him. And in this culture, it's the peace child. And so Don Richardson says, I'd like to present the gospel to you again. And here's the gospel. Heaven and earth were at war with each other, and peace was made because God offered his son as the peace child. Oh! Now we understand. Now we understand that Jesus is the peace child. Now do you understand that Judas betrayed the peace child? They're so angry at Judas. They cannot believe that anybody would betray the peace child. If they saw that happened in their village, they would tear that person apart if somebody betrayed the peace child in their villages. And so they finally got it. Heaven and earth at conflict was solved by somebody innocent coming into the world and being given to purchase peace for everybody. And that's where I think that the story of Cabrini Green and and the story of of the peace child here and, and, and the story of Jesus all sort of converge. Unfortunately, the way to make peace in the gospel is for the innocent to step in the middle of all the conflict and all the violence, and all the war, and all the evil, and all the sin. And at great cost to themselves, they must risk everything in order to bring true and lasting peace. And so, here it is. The call for the church, for the people who say that they emulate Jesus. What can we do? What can we do? And I don't know. (laughs) Except to just step in the middle and say... Here I am. Pour out all your wrath on me. I don't know if it would work. I'm certainly not willing. I have a wife and children. But with somebody. And I wonder, thinking of, not thinking of the national problem, the national conflict, in just your life, in your family, in your neighborhood, among your friends, what conflict is there? What conflict has been there and has escalated and has led to the distancing of people, and every time you put them in proximity to each other, it blows up again. What conflict is there? What do you, with God's help and God's calling, need to put yourself into at great risk to yourself in order to bring about a lasting peace? Peace doesn't just happen by signing a paper. Peace doesn't just happen by singing kumbaya around a fire. Peace doesn't happen just by saying, well, we'll try better next time. Somebody has to get into the middle of it at great risk to themselves and try to bring it about. And that is the calling for the church because the world is still at war with heaven. There are still people who don't know Jesus and at great risk to ourselves. Christians need to get in between, stand there, be the mediator, and try to bridge that gap. Jesus has bridged it theologically, but for a person who does not know the gospel, you need to be a link in that bridge to get them to Jesus, to get them to God. Okay? Peace is hard. Peace is not easy. But anybody who does become a peacemaker what would they be called? What does it say? Oh, the sons of God, the children of God. They'll look at you and they'll say, you're just like Jesus. Okay? Don't you want to be called that? They may call you a lot of things, but in the end, if you're able to broker peace between heaven and earth and earth and earth, they'll look at you and say, you're just like Jesus. And you say, no. There's only one Jesus. Let me tell you about Him. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You, and we thank You for sending Jesus to be the peacemaker in our world. We ask You, Lord, to help us learn from Him. Help us take great risk. Help us try to bring peace. Peace in our households, peace in our extended family, peace in our community, peace in our nation, peace in our world, peace in our church. We love you and we thank you for the example of people like Don Richardson. Help us to learn from you. Help us to learn from him. Help us to be inspired that if we can't sit aside, if we can't be uninvolved, show us how to be involved in the most Christ-like way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Good to see you this morning. Have a good afternoon. Be sure to get outside. It's very nice weather.